Before we begin, shall we bow our heads for prayer? Dear Lord, it's a beautiful morning up here at the camp. And how privileged we are to gather here as saints. We're your children. We love you. But how grateful we are that your love for us is unconditional. In spite of our foibles and our weakness and our failings, you never, never leave us. And so this morning we just pray that you will come here. May we sense your spirit. Bless me as I share and reminisce a bit and to talk about the marvelous ministry you've given to the church called Adra. So grant us your grace now, we pray in your name. Amen. All right, you have your Bibles, don't you? I'm going to have you, if you haven't read this passage, I want you to write it down. Because it's something that uh, will bring encouragement to you. It's in the book of Lamentations, the third chapter. You know this one. You know what I'm going to read. That's right. Lamentations 3, beginning with verse 20. My soul still remembers and sinks with me. Then I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. Through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed because his, what? Compassions fail not. I'm reading from the NIV. Because his compassions fail not, they are new every morning. Say amen to that. Every morning, every morning, his compassions, his compassion for us is there. Great is your faithfulness. And then I want to turn to the passage that we've been reading each morning. So let's turn to Matthew. Again, Matthew, the ninth chapter, and we want to read familiar verses that we've chosen as our as our text for this week. Matthew 9, verse 35, Then Jesus went about all the cities and the villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitude, he was moved with compassion. And as I read to you yesterday, Peterson's paraphrase of that in the message says, when he saw the multitudes, his heart broken. His heart broke. I think that I could, and I have, and you have too, I think that I have seen, and I know I've seen scenes of individuals who were suffering so terribly that when I saw them, my heart just sort of broke. But Jesus had the unusual capacity that when he saw the multitudes, his heart broke. Have you gone to a ball game? Sat there. I went to the Giant and Dodger game on Sunday. Took my daughter there. 
42,000 plus people. I don't think I can have the capacity to look at that multitude of 42,000 and be moved with compassion upon them. But here, Jesus had that capacity. Whether it was the feeding of the 5,000, it says that when he saw the 5,000, he was moved with compassion because he understood them. He, He knew their hearts. He knew what they were experiencing. The word compassion is found 20 times in the New Testament. 20 times. 14 of the 20, it refers to some experience in the life of Christ. He saw the paralytic, the multitudes. We can see the various times when Jesus was meeting some human need. The widow whose whose son, her only child, had passed away. He could see that and he was moved with compassion. And I think as Seventh-day Adventists, sometimes we feel that the compassionate side of the church should be handled by ADRA or by the church or by community services. But don't we bear some responsibility individually? Well, we do. And we'll be talking about that this morning. Now, when I accepted the invitation to go to ADRA, to the general conference, I knew that it would entail some traveling, but I had no idea what I was in for. I had been president of the Southern California Conference. And uh, this was before Larry was president of Nevada, Utah. But he had a much larger conference, territory-wise. I don't know how far it was from your headquarters to the further spot. What would it be? Three, four hundred miles? Eight hundred miles? Eight hour drive. Yeah, at 100 miles an hour, so you figure out. All right. Uh, now he wouldn't drive that fast. His wife probably wouldn't let him. Uh, but he had an eight-hour drive. From where I lived, I could reach all of my 140 churches except three within 45 minutes. Boom! L.A. County. Right there. Yes, I had Santa Barbara. And I had Ridgecrest. You know, they were a little further away. But nothing compared to what he had to deal with. So I had been president of this choice conference where I was at home every night. I never was away. And then, all of a sudden, I'm in Maryland. Oh, Elder Watts, we need you to make this trip here. And you need to go over here, and there's an emergency here, and can you come here to this board meeting? We're facing a major crisis. Can you make that trip over here? And before long, I realized that I was spending more time away from home than I was at home. And my wife and I figured it out, and I averaged between 220 and 240 days away out of the year. Is that good? No, it's not good. And particularly when I have a sweet wife like this that I love so much. She took such good care of me. And, and you know, Brother Moore, for some reason, the Brother in the General Conference just don't feel it's important for the wives to travel with them. Isn't that a tragedy? 
Except for the general conference president. Yes, the general conference president's wife travels with him. Did you know that? I think it's a great idea, don't you? I think it's good for the saints to see the wife of the president. Well, so that was my lot. And as I was saying a few moments ago, I, I wore two hats. I was an officer of the general conference because I was the general field secretary. And I was also the president of ADRA. So there are times when the church needed me to attend certain meetings. And then, of course, we had the ADRA business on top of it. So it was difficult. It was a difficult transition for us. But, you know, I experienced some things that I would never trade for being at home full time. Because of what I saw what touched my life, what, it, what I had the privilege of experiencing. Now, my title of my talk today is Too Many for Breakfast. Too, you had too much for breakfast? And I, and I didn't even come here for breakfast. I missed a good breakfast? Well, my, my, my wife was there. I, I, I'm, one of these, I'm one of these guys that doesn't particularly like to eat much before I have a speaking appointment. Does that make sense? So on Sabbath morning, very, very light. I want to just try to keep the mind as clear as can be, and I have enough trouble as it is. So uh, why add to the dilemma? So my topic today is too many for breakfast. Now tomorrow you won't want to miss tomorrow, because this is one of the favorite ones. Tomorrow I'm going to be talking about the, what, you remember the topic? The good, the bad, the ugly. And I've added a couple more to it. And these are the people who've touched my lives. Positively, negatively. Leaders of countries that I will name for you who absolutely uh, terrified me and others that I thought were the most wonderful, kind, caring leaders of their country you could ever hope for. The people were fortunate to have them, have that individual as their, as their president. And then the little people. Some I don't even know the names of, but that touched me. Really touched my heart. I will never forget them as long as I live. So tomorrow, you won't want to miss that one. But today I want to talk to you about too many for breakfast. And it's a scene that I will never, never in my life erase, be able to erase. I'd flown into Nairobi, Kenya, and a small mission aircraft operated by MAF, Mission Aviation Fellowship, that was charted for me, and I was flown in to the very edge of the country of Tanzania. It was early in the morning. I rushed over. They put me in a car and rushed me out, and I couldn't believe what I was seeing. And I stepped up on a knoll, probably 30 or 40, 50 feet in height, and everywhere I looked, As far as the eye could see, people, 
refugees. People. More refugees. Families. Single people. Parents. Little kids. Mothers. Children. As far as the eye could see. And standing next to me, I said, How many are here? And he said, Ralph, there are too many for breakfast. Do you have any idea what it was I was looking at? Think back to 1994. And I'm going to give you the names of two countries. And it'll come to you instantly. Rwanda, Burundi. Does that ring a bell? Thousands upon multiplied thousands. And it was estimated by the UN, HCR, the High Commissioner for Refugees, that's all they do. They told me, because we were working with them, they anticipated, they, according to their calculations, I was looking at between three and 400,000 people. As far as the eye could see, I could not see the end of the crowd. And they were still streaming in. Because you see, the, the border of Burundi is right there, smack up against the edge of the country of Tanzania. Now, what would you do if you were the president of Tanzania? And you had 400,000 that showed up for breakfast. You had a good breakfast. They had nothing. They had nothing. So we were there as a part of another, uh, with many other organizations, to provide assistance. And what could we do? And that's when it's necessary for the world community to come together, isn't it? That's a time when we all need to work together. And so we do. We were there with World Vision and with CARE and Save the Children and Oxfam and all these other organizations. And ADRA is a key player. Because one of the things that we do well as an organization is assist in disaster relief. And here we have a refugee crisis. And you know, when I saw that, and then I heard the stories of what had happened, it took me back 20 years, as I spoke about yesterday. It took me back 20 years to a terrible tragedy that took place in the territory of the Union where I was the president. And that was a terrible slaughter and bloodshed that happened in Cambodia under Pol Pot, where one-fourth of the population of the country was wiped out in a period of months. One-fourth of the population. Where was the UN? Why weren't, why weren't troops sent in to stop that massacre by Pol Pot? Why did we sit by and do nothing? My country. We could have stopped it in a heartbeat, couldn't we? We could have. We could have put him out of business in a hurry if we wanted to. We don't work that way. But I want to tell you something. One of the greatest regrets that Bill Clinton has to this very day is the fact that he did not step in and stop that massacre in Rwanda and Burundi. Do you know that? He has said that. And looking back at his, his presidency, those eight years, he says, when I look back on it, he says, I wish that we would have done something to have stopped it. 
We could have. We could have. And what was it? How did it start? Have any idea? A plane crash. A plane crash. It triggered it. The president of the country was killed in a plane crash. So one tribe accuses the other tribe of sabotaging the plane, and boom, 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 boom. And the knives come out. The swords come out. The spears come out. The guns come out. And people who had been living next to each other for 30 and 40 years turned on each other and slaughtered them. It's not a pretty picture, but you need to, you need to just relive it because I, I lived through that. We had a great work going in Rwanda. The church was blossoming. It was growing. French-speaking country. We had a university that we had just, we were very close to completing, finishing a beautiful university out up on the edge of the mountains. You remember the, the story of the gorillas? You've heard that story? Those beautiful gorillas there in the mountains of Rwanda? Our university is close to those mountains. And we were very close to finishing. It was going to be the university for the French-speaking part of Africa, West Africa primarily. It's gone. Don't have it today. Tragedy. A tragedy. Well, we worked there for many years. We had camps. We had feeding places. We had clinics. We had... Doctors that went over and volunteered and dentists that went over and volunteered and medical people and others that tried to give help from Zaire and uh, from various points where we could touch the lives of the people. So we've been there. We, we worked in that area for many, many years trying to help the people get the ones that survived. But I want to tell you of one scene. This morning, the morning that I came for that breakfast, so I told the Adra gentleman that was with me, I said, let's take a walk. So we walked. Little pathway through there. Temporary shelters. Plastic here. Cardboard here. You know, little tarps here. Where they were huddled together trying to stay together as family units. And I stopped. I saw a young mother. I can picture her face today. Very attractive, nice looking uh, woman. And she had three children. A babe, an infant boy, and a little older girl. And in front of her little shelter, she had erected a little fireplace. And she had a little stove there. And I don't know what she was cooking. I think she was cooking some beans. But there was that little pot. And she was knelt down there, had a baby on her back, and the little boy playing around there. So I knelt down beside her with the translator, and I began to ask her questions. I said, what is your name? Gave me the name. I said, where are you from? Burundi. When did you arrive here? Well, day before yesterday. Do you have family with you here? No. You have any relatives with you? Do you know any of the people here? No. I said, you have a husband? 
Yeah. Do you know where he is? I think I do, but I'm not sure. Do you have any idea whether he will be joining you? No. I said, what happened? She said, I think he was killed. I said, what are you going to do? She looked up at me, and she probably thought, why do you ask that question? Yeah, why do you ask that question? But I had to ask it. And she says, Mr., I don't know how we will get through today. And I am not sure about tomorrow. Do we realize that there are literally millions of people like that today on planet Earth? I don't know if I can get through today. For sure, tomorrow. Too many for breakfast. Too many for breakfast. Now you can see when I share this with you, you can understand how I will never be able to let that scene escape from my mind. And it shouldn't. Because I want God to show me that from time to time to keep my heart sensitive. And one of the great dangers that we had in working for ADRA, and I had to remind the staff over and over as I had to remind myself, I said, wherever we go, we're always going to see pain. We're going to see suffering. We're going to see people in distress. We're going to see refugees. We're going to be people in, in war situations. And I said, we're going to see it over and over and over and over again. I said, be careful. We have to be very careful that our hearts do not become calloused. Because we see it and experience it all the time. And the same is true for our people that are working out there. Think of our country directors that are dealing with this day in and day out. I want God to help me have a sensitive heart every day. I walk by, I see a homeless person. But for the grace of God, that could be me. And I want to ask you another question. And I'm not ashamed to ask this question. I want you to know, I'm going to tell you right now how I feel. We should thank God every morning that we are Americans. I could have been born in some other part of the world. I was born in some other part of the world. But fortunately, it was to American parents. You know, I, I told you I was born in Korea, but I probably don't look like a Korean, do I? <laughs> the Koreans would say I'm a Yankobegi. You know what that means? Yankobegi, uh, the man with the big nose. <laughs> Yankobegi. Uh, yeah, that's the Korean word for it. And, uh, and they can tell by the Yankobegi and the blue eyes that I'm not them. I'm not Korean, although I am Korean to some extent. And I'm going to tell you a story tomorrow, an interesting story about my experience in North Korea. So don't miss it, because it's a rather interesting, uh, a bit humorous too. 
And so we have this challenge to keep sensitive hearts, to maintain sensitive hearts. And that's my appeal to you today. Think about some of the things that I've shared with you yesterday and today. And to realize that we are still living in the land of the enemy, are we not? And this is what Satan desires, to bring this world to despair. But we are a people of hope. And that's what Adra does. We are ambassadors of hope. We endeavor to bring hope to people that life can be better, that we can help them, we can train them, we can help develop them, we can help develop their skills, we can help develop their gifts, their spiritual gifts they don't know anything about. And we may never even talk to them about it, but we can see it. Our, our people that are working with them can see it and say, this person's gifted in this area, let's, let's help them along. So that's a part of the challenge that we face. So yes, too many for breakfast. Another experience that really touched me is another part of the world. How many of you have been to the country of Nepal? Any? How many would like to visit Nepal? One of my favorite countries. Gorgeous, landlocked, mountainous. but poor, very, very poor. India to the south, Burundi. You ever heard of Burundi? Not Burundi. No, 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 no. Uh, Now Burma's way down to the south. Uh, Maybe I have it here. Not, well, Tibet's on the the north side. Uh, Bhutan. Bhutan, got it. You know, it's not fun being 80 years old. You know that? Yeah, I'm I'm in the early stages, I guess. Anyway, that name didn't come up, Larry. I don't know. You don't have that problem, though. (laughs) Bhutan. Bhutan was a hermit nation up until a couple of years ago. In fact, they would only allow 3,000 tourists to visit the country in one year. 3,000 only. So they wanted their own private little kingdom. But they are now opening their doors. Anyway, we, we, we endeavored to start a work in Bhutan. We went over and vet, met with the government officials and thought we had everything lined up. We were going to begin a little health program in the country. But uh, the government wasn't quite ready for it at that time. I think today we could probably do it. But anyway, I want to take you to Nepal. Now, the country director we had in Nepal when I first arrived there in about 1986 was a man who had worked in Africa. His name, he was an Australian. His name was Paul Dalhunty. And his wife's name was Dawn. He was a nurse, been trained as a nurse, and had worked in Africa. And while in Africa, he had had experience in working with lepers. And he had a skill for it. He had a talent, he had a gift for it. I think God gifted him for that, with that ability. So now... He's transferred to the country of Nepal. He's the country director. He's in charge of our entire operation in the country of Nepal. There wasn't much going on at that time. But he's a man that, that 
doesn't know a stranger. He got acquainted with the government officials, with USAID. When I say USAID, you know what I'm talking about? The United States Agency for International Development. That's the agency in the government that we submit proposals for for grants. We refer to it as USAID, U-S-A-I-D. So you're going to hear me say a, mention that a time or two. And it works under the, 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 under the State Department of State. And, uh, and so he, he got acquainted with the various funders, and I'll talk about that uh, later on today or tomorrow, where we secure our funding. And, and uh, he was beginning, able to get some grants, some funding. But he discovers shortly after arriving that the country had a problem that they didn't know what to deal, how to deal with it. In fact, they closed their eyes to it. But they had two colonies in the country of lepers. And what they did when they found someone in the country that had leprosy, immediately they take that person and, or that family and they bring these to these old military barracks that were dirty and filthy barracks and they would shove them into those barracks and say goodbye we don't want to see you or hear from you again and so there were hundreds of people in these barracks with different stages of leprosy and there were two of them one in one part of the country the other one on the other side in Pokhara and this was near Kathmandu a little community called Kokona I'll never forget going out there for the first time and seeing all those people Different stages of leprosy. The little kids seem to be okay. But I go by, nose missing, ears gone, ears and nose gone, fingers, starts at the tip, works its way up. Finally, there's not much left there. And Dalhanti began his work, his ministry there. And his wife, Dawn, she would come out there with bars and bars and bars of soap and she'd take those little toddlers out and she'd put them under that, that faucet and she would just soap them up and down. You know, every few days, come out and just clean those kids up because that meant the difference, didn't it? And so I would watch Dalhunty go to work and we'd go upstairs and it was filthy black because of the smoke that filtered up. And they would have one room and they slept there and they cooked there and their waste was there because they had their goats there, they had their sheeps there, sheep there, and then they had a little drainage and that's where the sewage went. Terrible. The stench was unbelievable. What you saw you could not comprehend. And I would go up and I'd watch Paul. And one, once in a while, someone would cry. Mister, mister. He'd take the hand, touch it, hold it. Very tenderly, he'd take a look at that. The bandage was filthy. He would peel it off, pull out some bandage, put some salve on there, wrap it up pat the hand he didn't worry about it he didn't worry about it well, Larry was talking last night about Jesus healing the people on the Sabbath 
But I want to tell you, one of the miracles that Jesus did that really touched me because of this experience was the time that Jesus healed the leper. Do you remember what, when the leper asked for healing? Jesus talked with him. What does the Bible say? That Jesus reached out and what? He touched him. That was a no-no. Because he defiled himself by doing that. And every time I saw Dalhanti doing this, who do you think I pictured? Jesus. Paul. I've told him. I said, Paul, you're doing the work of Jesus, man. You're doing the work of Jesus. Tenderly, one after another, he would go through that. I sat down, talked with him after that first visit. I said, Paul, what are you going to do? What are we going to do? How are we going to take care of this? He said, Ralph, with God's help, before I leave this country, we will eradicate leprosy. I said, man, does this guy have a vision? You know, is he a visionary? You know, I, you like having people like that to work with, don't you? Boy, nothing's impossible with this guy. But he knew what needed to be done. And so we talked about it. And we developed strategies. And he began seeking funding from various sources, from Canada, from, from Australia, from Germany, and from the U.S., and different places, and others that he had. And he said, here's what we've got to do. Number one, we have to find a place to move these people. I said, what's your plan? We're going to buy land. We're going to buy land. We're going to buy land. I said, yes. And then we're going to build houses. We're going to build houses. And we're going to build houses. And then, and then we're going to tear the barracks down. Forever. Forever. And over the next 10 years, my friends, I saw this happen. I saw this happen. I'd go back. And I'd go back, and I'd go back. He had rapport with the government like you can't believe. Do you think that they were happy that he was in the country? Oh, I'm sure the king, if he were a praying man, would say, thank you, God, for sending Paul to Hunty. But I've heard people in the government say that. Thank you for sending this man here. One day he says, Ralph, we've got to make a trip. So where are we going? We're going to the other part of the country. So fine. I go, we're going to the airport. We're not taking the vehicle? No, he said, go in the airport. We got the airport. There's the government. There's the government officers. And we're taken to a nice helicopter. You mean we're not going over those roads? Oh, we don't have time. We got it. We're in a hurry. You don't have much time. You're only here for a couple days. And that was true. So we jumped in the helicopter and we flew over Nepal, looking down those mountains, looking down those little villages. We go to the city of Pokhara. We go out and we see a similar scene, the barracks. And so what Paul did, as the funds would become available, he had part of his national staff. Now, if you're a foreigner in a foreign country, you never negotiate for land or property. You know that. And the reason for it, don't you? They're going to jack the price up ten times if they see this Yanko Beggy. Uh, and so uh, we send the national out to negotiate the price, whether it's in Thailand or Nepal. And so we had national staff, and they would go out and inquire, and they'd negotiate, and they'd buy some land. We bought land, we bought land, we bought land. And as these families were able to get a little bit better, we would move them into these homes, little families. 
What are we going to do? Well, we, we need to do some education. So we built a little school. And do you know what he did? The German government paid for this. At that first place, they built a vocational center where we could train the young people growing up various types of trades. Isn't that a good idea? That's part of ADRA. That's what we do. Train, educate, help these people to stand with dignity. Then we had a little clinic there. We had a little clinic that we built in that community. So you have the houses scattered all over here, you know, a number of acres, small little homes, three room, four rooms, very simple, inexpensive. Then they would go to the clinic, kids would go to the school. That's the way it is today. Now, you're going to Nepal. Promise me something. I want you to promise me you'll go out to Kokona while you're there and visit that place, okay? And come back and give me a report. Just thinking that I'm still with Adra. So, but, but the nub of the story is that Paul Dunhanti is no longer in Nepal. In a way, I'm saddened by it. But in another way, I praise God for what he and Don were able to do. Those barracks are down, and the little kids are okay. And he did something that the government could not do. Do you know, friends, there are things that ADRA can do that the government cannot do? Or does not wish to do? Or does not have the capacity to do it? Or doesn't have the interest in doing it? But we're there because we are ambassadors of God. We are there because God has put us there to represent the life and the ministry of our Lord. And I want to tell you another thing. When I first went to Nepal, 85, 80, probably 86, 1986, we had hardly any work in Nepal. The government frowned on it, wouldn't allow it. It was against the law. But today, the work is flourishing in Nepal. Amen. We have our own mission there. We have our own leadership there. We have pastors there working there. And we have churches that are planting that are growing we had to have a secret ordination service for one of our pastors on one of my early visits there in the home of our doctor at the hospital, Shear Memorial Hospital. The doctor residing there, we had a little Sabbath school and church there, and we had an ordination service. They don't have to worry about that anymore. They can do it freely, openly. So it's a new day. And I want to share, I'm going to share a number of experiences where when we first went into some of these countries back in the early 80s, no church presence at all. But today, the church is moving forward in a powerful way. And one of the reasons for it is because of the ministry of ADRA. Amen. Touching lives and people asking, why do you do this? I have had people in some of these countries come up to me and say, Mr. Watts, What motivates you people to leave the comforts of your home in the United States and come to our country and work here? What motivates you to do that? Is that a good question? And is that a great opportunity for me? 
or for any Adra worker, absolutely. We're here because we believe that that is what God would have us do. We're here because we believe that we want to do everything we can to make life better for your people, for you, for your people. And that's our God-given responsibility. How are we doing on time? My time, my time lady here to keep me on that half hour. All right, we got to move along here. <clears throat> I'm going to talk, I was going to tell you about Somalia. You've heard of Somalia? Mogadishu? Have any of you been to Mogadishu? Don't go. <laughs> Don't go. I was there for several days. I'll, I'll save that for tomorrow. I got to save that for tomorrow. Ah, oh, my lands. I'm running out of time today. I've got, look, I've got all these things I want to talk to you about today. I'm going to have to postpone it, I guess, for another time. I'll tell you what I'm going to do. Uh, Lauren, where are you? Can you give us a little update on what's going on in Haiti? Have you been there recently? Lady? I'm going to interview you. Uh, while uh, Lauren's coming up, let me tell you. Uh, my first visit to Haiti was shortly after I became president of ADRA. Now, I want to... i got to be careful in what I say. Anyone here from Haiti? One of the saddest countries I have ever visited in my life. I was going to say it's the basket case country, but I don't want to say that. But I want to say, what I will say is, that the people of that country have suffered and suffered and suffered. We can never understand. We will never be able to comprehend. Government in total disarray. Infrastructure falling apart. Institutions not able to function as they should. And ADRA came in there. We have been involved for years and years and years in providing food aid for literally thousands of people in Haiti. ADRA, Catholic Relief, and CARE. You've heard of those three organizations? We were the three organizations that kept that country afloat. And do you know who told me that? If it hadn't been for the three of your three organizations, he said, I don't know what would have happened. That statement was made to me by a man by the name of Bill Clinton. So what's happening today? Tell me. Well, I have had an opportunity to visit Haiti several times. The first time I went was following the earthquake. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't have an opportunity to see the country before that. Um, but it didn't start out in, in the best condition before, <laughs> yeah, right. before the earthquake hit. So um, the earthquake was very devastating. Um, and it also took a toll on the people as well as far as um, their motivation to uh, pick up and move on. It was, you know, there was a lot of uh, feeling that, you know, it, it could happen again or they didn't know what was around the corner and so that why try? Um, so that was really difficult to see, um, just the great devastation and then not any uh, motivation to 
to clean up their surroundings and to, to move forward. But over the years as I've had a chance to go back and forth, I've been very encouraged to see little improvements every time I visit. And um, it gets a little bit cleaner and there's a little bit more um, order and, and development as far as some of the organizations that have been involved in, in helping with things. Um, but it is a very, uh, very, very poor country and um, it doesn't have any kind of infrastructure and um, in fact it doesn't even have uh, a sewage system in, in the country or you know some basic things that it needs to, um, to advance and there's not a good road system and things like that. So it is a very difficult place to work. It's uh, very volatile, and you never know from one day to the next how things are going to be. And um, you know, there's rioting and different things that that happen as a result of uh, gas shortages and food shortages and and different things that um, just happen in that place because of uh, the lack of access to things and lack of jobs and and also there's. Um, all, a lack of motivation to apply yourself because if you have a relative in the United States that can send you $100 a month, then you can live off of that and why have a job? Jobs are for for the poor people. And they, you know, it's just a it's very, it's this mentality I don't understand. Um, so it's it's been a challenging place to work, um, but it's a very, it's a beautiful country with beautiful people and um, I've just been very grateful to have had the opportunity to stay involved with some of these projects and, and get to know the children and um, when I go back they know my name and um, so that's that's been really wonderful. Um, as you know, um, Haiti was so close to home that it really, um, it moved us a lot and everyone wanted to be involved in helping to um, bring relief to that area. So we did get a lot of funding from um, private donors that we've been implementing over a long-term um, plan so that we can provide the best aid possible. And um, one of the projects that we had um, is we partnered with Maranatha actually to build schools. We built a hundred schools in uh, in Haiti and, and mostly in the Port-au-Prince area. Um, and then also we have ongoing uh, water projects is another of our major uh, projects because um, there's been a cholera crisis that's just kind of ongoing. It just keeps, the water keeps getting recontaminated and people keep um, getting uh, affected by that. And so we have been um, implementing our uh, water projects, not only establishing clean water sources, but the way that we work with water, and we may talk about this more um, throughout the week, but um, we don't just bring water to uh, a community. We will um, bring water and sanitation and um, education as, as a package. So we will implement um, a, a source for them to have clean water, but also latrines and um, education on how to uh, un health and sanitation um, that will all go to, to help educate the kids in the orphanages and some of the places that we work. And there are um, several orphanages that I've got to visit that have some of these latrines and water sources implemented in them. And, and it's uh, made all the difference because one of them, well, the first time I visited um, was shortly after, I guess it was a year after the earthquake, the first time I visited this particular orphanage. And there was just a tiny little spigot coming out of the, a wall with water that was coming from who knows where. And there wasn't good um, latrines or anything, and so the kids, and they weren't being educated on, you know, how to uh, prevent disease and things like that. So 
having all of this um, paired together has really helped to increase the health of the communities. Um, and it's a, it's a, um, it takes time to, to relearn and retrain. And when you start with the kids, it has uh, a faster impact. And so we've been really blessed to see that um, to take off. And, um, and it, it trickles up to the, to the older generations, too, and they see um, some of the value. So a lot of, you know, there's a lot of misinformation and a lot of superstition and things that play into the way that they do things. And, um, and so that's been, you know, another challenge to, to deal with and, and work with. Um, but as there's education and as they see in, and um, have confidence in the organization that they're working with, they um, will adopt some of the practices and education that they receive. Well, thanks, Lauren. Thank you. Thank you. Good. I just got a blurb yesterday. Get this thing turned off here. Is it off? I turned. I thought I flipped the switch off. I just got a little blurb from Adra. Where are you? I got a little blurb from Adra Canada yesterday. Did you get that one? You read about it? It talked about Haiti. Now, this is fresh. This is yesterday. ADRA Canada is raising money to build fences around these schools that we've built. Do you know why? Crime. Do you know what's happening? They're coming up and kidnapping the kids as they come out of school. Right. I know a man who was very involved from Grass Valley Church. All right. Biggest problem is kidnapping by police. By police? police? Off-duty police, they do the kidnapping. Uh, That's how broken the system is. How? Who? Yeah. He, he was supporting a school. He was doing a lot of work there. He took a lot of students to go do that. He said, can't do it anymore. Uh, well, this is the first time. Yeah, this is the first time I heard this. Building walls around our schools to keep the kids safe and the bad guys out. Well, anyway, they're raising money. They're raising $100,000 uh, to build fences. Uh, Adra, this is ADRA Canada. Now, you know, we have separate ADRA operations in many of these countries. And we have what we refer to as the donor or the funding countries. And we have the countries where the projects are implemented that receive the funds. So we look at two sort of two different categories. And Canada and U.S. and I'll name a bunch of them tomorrow. Uh, are the ones that provide the funding, and ADRA Canada is very active. They have a good program, and they've raised, uh, they're raising money for this. And also, uh, Lauren, they're involved in providing support for the refugees in the Ukraine because of the crisis there. So, you know, no matter, you know, take a map, take a dart, and you throw a dart at the map, and wherever it hits, there's going to be problems. Isn't that right? And so you have the Middle East, you have Gaza, you have Israel, you have Syria, you have Jordan. Think of the Jordan, look at the refugees that are in Jordan, spilling over. We could go on and on about some of those areas, but I, uh, we may get to that on Friday if we, uh, if we have a bit of time. Uh, we've, got, we've got a few more minutes. So let me just finish up on Haiti. We have, we have had all these difficulties with Haiti over the years, and we continue to work there. We continue to work there. Why? Why should we still be there with all of these problems? Should we say enough is enough and pull out? I want to tell you, 
There are a lot of organizations that have pulled out of Haiti. Did you know that? There are a lot of them. Because they don't see any results. They don't see any stability. It seems like one step forward, two steps back. And we had these issues for years in Haiti. I'll just give you an example. Between Catholic Relief and CARE, we were providing food aid to hundreds of thousands of people in Haiti. So the country was divided up. We had one segment. They'd have another segment. They would have another segment. So we, we all had our areas where we would, we would have truckload after truckload after truckload, tons and tons and tons of food to provide for the people who were starving to death. But as the trucks were rolling along the road, stop, stop. You get out of the truck. We'll take it over. And so we, we go back and we try to meet that need because the people are planning on it. They're needing it. Those are the kinds of situations that we had to deal with. But the one that shook me up the most was the day that President Aristide was sent back to Haiti. You remember he had to escape and then he came to the States for a while and then President Clinton negotiated and worked with the, uh, with the people in Haiti and, and Aristide was back. So the President had a, uh, a sending off ceremony at the White House for President Aristide and I was invited to attend this function on the West Lawn. So we, we get these invitations occasionally and Sometimes we'd ignore them and sometimes we would go. And this one, uh, we had been so heavily involved, uh, I felt that I needed 10. So I was there along with the president of CARE and the, and the uh, executive director of Catholic, uh, uh, Catholic Services. Uh, and we were all, the three of us were all good friends. You know, we're competitors, but there's no reason we can't be friends. <laughs> and uh, we're competitors in the right sense of the word, though. In the right sense of the word. So we were at meetings all the time. We knew each other. In fact, I served on the care board for, for a short period of time until I said to him, I said, Phil, this doesn't make sense. I'm heading up a humanitarian organization. You're heading up a humanitarian organization. You know, I don't want you on my board. Why do you want me on yours? <laughs> and, uh, and so I said, why don't I just uh, resign? And so, I, and so I did. But the reason for it, we were involved. Adventists, by the way, were one of the original uh, instigators in helping care get started World War II. That may come as a surprise. So we were involved helping care get established. And, uh, but that's a side point. So we're at the White House. We're having this big ceremony. And, uh, and I'm going to talk about Bill Clinton tomorrow, so I won't get into that discussion. But I, uh, but I was concerned, and I had mentioned to him, I am very concerned about the lack of security for our employees, our staff, and our offices, and our equipment in Haiti. And I said, Mr. President, you have, we have troops down there. Why can't we send a Marine contingent to come out to our office and watch over us? And he told me, you know, he gave me a little speech of how to get it done, and, and it's a long story. So I knew that we were under attack at, at times. So the next morning, this is on a Friday, next morning is Sabbath. I get a call early in the morning. It was the director of our operations in Haiti, the ADRA director. He said, Elder Watts, can you hear it? I said, hear what? Can you hear the gunfire? 
And I listened for a while. I could hear the machine gun. No question, machine gun fire. He said, they're on the way. They're on the road up to our office. I said, well, how long do you think they'll go? I said, it won't be long before they're going to be here. So what are we going to do? And I said, get out of there. It's not worth one life. We had a million dollars worth of vehicles sitting there in the parking lot. We had a warehouse full of food. And we had employees. They probably weren't there, many of them on Sabbath. I said, get out of there. It's not worth one life. And I'm going to tell you tomorrow of some who paid the supreme price of our address staff. So I get out of there. So the previous day, I had been told by a, a high official in the White House, if you have any problems down there, you give me a ring. As soon as I got off the phone with the address, you know what I did. I called him up and I said, man, have we got a problem. And I said, I don't know who you need to talk to, but I said, you talk to the highest ranking general you can find down there and tell them what our plight is and we need some help and we need it now. There are times when diplomacy is good. There are times when straight talk is good too. And, and that, this was a time for straight talk. And he said, yes, sir. He said, we'll take care of it. So anyway, he got on the phone, talked to the plane that was taking Aristide back because the general was on the plane with him. The general calls back, gets, gets on the phone, talks to Haiti. And, you know, within a few moments' time, there's a contingent of Marines that, that come up there and, and no one got hurt. That's Haiti. You never know what's going to happen tomorrow. But we're there because people need us. And we'll continue to stay there, most likely. We have a hospital that's doing a wonderful work. Wonderful work. Now I want to leave with one final story. This is one of my favorite ones. Another country in Asia that is rife with heartache and pain and suffering and despair. It's the country of Bangladesh. Have any of you been to Bangladesh? You have. Bangladesh is in the lowlands. And every year it seems there are cyclones that whip through there. And when you get the heavy downpour tropical rains and it's high tide, what do you think happens to the Delta region? Floods. And hundreds and thousands of lives are lost because they have built their little shelters too close. And then they back up. They move up, move, move back. And then they've got to fight the snakes. Because when the water rises, they have nowhere to go. So we have worked for years in, in, in Bangladesh and trying to, with housing. I remember one time there were a group of students from Walla Walla that went over there and spent a summer building nice housing up further away from the low, lowland area. And it's a country that's volatile, politically, for religious reasons. I won't get into that. But I will share with you what happened on my last visit there. I had a, a group with me, a delegation. Uh, Larry, it was the Southern Union officers were with me on a trip through Asia. I have, twice I took them through Asia. I went to the conference presidents, the union officers, and whatever. So we were there, a delegation. And we had a meeting with the Minister of Social Welfare, high-ranking official in the government. 
We were on our way to the airport. Pat and the rest of them had gone to the airport. They were there waiting for us. But we, we digressed. We made this way because I had this important appointment. I wanted to meet this man. He was a very important man. And he knew what Adra was doing and was very appreciative. So we go into his office. We have a very nice visit. And all of a sudden, he says, oh, no. Oh, no. No. He gets up and he walks over to the window. He's looking out on the street. Oh, no. I said, sir, what's the problem? Riots. Protests. He said, we have them all the time. They're protesting for this or they're protesting for this. And they shut the government down. They shut the streets down. We can't do anything. We can't go anywhere. He says, you, don't un- you can't believe problems it creates for us he says where are you going i said we're on our way to the airport we have a flight he said that street i walked over you cannot believe the street was just lined up with people as far as i could see down that street people were shouting and hollering we were up probably about the sixth or seventh floor of this office building and there they were the gates the gates into that uh, government office were blocked with people, and that were the very gates that we had to go out. He says, I don't know if you're going to make it. I said, we have to. We have a flight to catch. We've got appointments to meet. Now, picture this. You have the president of the union. You have the president of ADRA. You have maybe one or two conference presidents. And he said, there's only one way you guys can get, you men can get out of here. Didn't call us guys, you men. So you've got to go out the backyard and crawl over the fence. <laughs> yeah. Picture me crawling over a fence, will you? So he said, he says, you better go. So he apologized, thanked us for our visit. So we made our way down there. I think there were five or six of us. He says, I'll send some of my staff along with you. I'm glad they came because without their help, you know, whoop, we'd have never made. So here you got... President of Adler, the president of the union, what have you. We're crawling over these fences. We're, we're both pretty good-sized guys. And uh, then we get down the other end, and we finally find a, a pedicab. You know what a pedicab is? Mm-hmm. And we made our way to the airport, and families were anxiously concerned <laughs> about our wealth. But what had happened the previous day made it worthwhile. And this is what I'm going to end with today. We, we had taken a bus probably an hour to an hour and a half out of of Dhaka. And we were going up country because the ad director says, I want you to see a project that you are going to be very proud of. We go to this little community, and nice, that's a typical little village, the flat roofs. Came to this little building, and they had a parachute as, as, a, as a tent over this. The, the, the roof of this building. So we, we walk up the steps, the outside steps, and there, seated on the rooftop of that building, were probably 80 to 100 Bangladesh women dressed in their finest. They were beautiful-looking women. Oh, they look so nice. They're colorful, colorful dresses. And so they told the story of what had happened. Years before, Adred had come in there and worked in that village. 
And do you still call it microenterprise today? So it was a microenterprise. So we were teaching a group of women in that area how to read and write, how to add and subtract, how to set up a little bank account, and we taught them some industries. And we set up a little co-op. And Adra put about $10,000 or $5,000 into that little co-op that they managed. It was their bank account. And those ladies set up their board of directors, and they organized it. They ran it. They loaned the money out. That's what they did. And each woman could borrow up to $300 at one time. And then they would decide what they wanted to do. And some of the women started a little baking business. They bake bread or cookies or pastries. Another lady says, oh, she says, I like to sew. So she got some professional sewing machines and she began a little sewing business. And she would sew garments and things of that type, some that were sold in the market and in different places. And the one lady I want to tell you about, she wasn't sure what she wanted to do and she finally hit on an idea. We need more taxis in this town, this little community. So she says, how much would it cost to buy one of these pedicabs? So a pedicab is a three-wheeled vehicle. You can picture it. The driver sits behind in the front. The passengers take their life. You know, <laughs> they sit there, and the guy pedals like crazy and hauls you around. So anyway, so she bought a pedicab. She hired a driver, paid the driver well, and after a while, she paid it off. This is a good business. I'll get another one. So she bought another one, hired another driver. And after a few months, it paid off. She paid the bill, paid it off to the bank, and she borrowed another $300. And she couldn't find a driver. So where am I going to get a driver? Well, right there in front of her. Some of the laziest people on planet Earth are men. <laughs> Am I right, ladies? You said that. <laughs> well, anyway, her, her husband was out of a job at that time. And uh, she said to him, she said, uh, would, you like to, would you like a job? Well, of course I'd like a job. Well, I'll hire you. What? I'll hire you. To do what? She said, to drive this cab I just bought, this pedicab. You pay me for that? Yes, she said, I'll pay you exactly what I pay the other guys. You drive for me. So he said, okay. So he's now working for his wife. Now that, that doesn't happen too often in Asia. More often, more often than the men will admit, though. Does he have to give the money back to her like I do my wife? No. Oh, okay. yeah. yeah. Your wife will be happy if you will give her money whenever you are willing to. So anyway, so he's doing his job. And uh, so one day she's in a hurry. She's got to make a bank deposit. She doesn't have time. She's got other things to do. And uh, so she puts some money in an envelope. And she says, I want you to take this to the bank. I don't remember what the currency's called in Bangladesh. Dhaka? I don't remember. Anyway, it's 2,200, okay? Local currency. Take it to the bank, and they'll give you a receipt for it, and you bring it back. So he, fine. Rushes down. An hour goes by. Two hours go by. Three hours go by. He doesn't show up. Oh, you're reading too much into this. <laughs> I haven't finished the story yet. 
So anyway, finally he shows up. Okay. Did you go to the bank? Yeah. You have the receipt? Yes. So she, he hands it to her. And she looks at the receipt. You remember the original amount was how much? 2,000 what? 200. She gets the receipt. It's 2,000. 200 missing. So very tactfully, as she would, as any wife would to her husband, <laughs> she says, uh, Dear, I gave you 2,200. And you've given me a receipt for 2,000. Now there's 200 that's missing. Do you have any idea? Probably didn't do that. I'm exaggerating maybe a little. Anyway, he said, well, you know, I I, I met some of my friends down there. And uh, we decided to go to the coffee shop and have some coffee and some cakes. She said, that's fine. Well, that's fine. Just tell me. She stood up. She says, Dr. Watts, if it hadn't been for Adra, I want to tell you how our life has changed. Because of what I learned, because of what I was taught, because of the business that I was able to start, my kids are all eating better. They have nutritious meals. We're able to buy food that we couldn't afford before. Number two, the kids are able to go to school with books and pencils and paper. And Mr. Watts, they're able to wear clothes that look nice. We're respectable now. And it never would have happened if you folk had not come here to this community. You changed our lives. How do you think that made me feel? And I said, thank you for that. And I said, all we ask in return is that you share what you have experienced with the women in the village next to you and beyond them and beyond them. Part of the work of Adra. I was pretty fortunate to visit these places. A lot of travel. Somewhere around 190 countries. That's a lot of wasted time at airports. It's a lot of canceled flights. That's a lot of lousy airplane food. It's a lot of flights that were canceled. And if you want to hear what despair is all about, let me give you a quick example. You're in a part of the world that's very remote. It's unfriendly. It's not safe. The food is not good. You really are living in conditions that are very unpleasant. You can't wait for that plane to come and pick you up. And you arrive at the airport. You get on the airplane. You sit there for an hour. You're soaking wet. And of sweat because they don't have the ability to cool off the plane. And then they ask you to get off because there's some issues that they have to deal with. And so you get off the plane, you go into the airport, and then they come on with the announcement. And they say that we are 
unfortunately, we sorry to notify you that this flight has been canceled. The next flight leaving this airport will be in five days. <laughs> now, if you think that being president of ADRA is fun, <laughs> just think of that once in a while. Will you? Will you? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful again for the privilege of being your children. For the ministry of ADRA, for the lives that it touches. For the opportunity that I've had to share some of these experiences with my brothers and sisters here. And I just pray that you will lead in our lives and help us to be men and women who not only love you as our Lord and Savior, but who love the men and women and the boys and girls that are your children here on this planet. People who are suffering. People that we will never see, we will never know, but we can help through our prayers, through our gifts, and through the ministry of Adra. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Tomorrow, the good, the bad, the ugly, and a few other characters. <laughs>